0: Lesson 7 for November 5 through to 11 Retributive Punishment Sabbath afternoon, November 5 before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we open your word again today. We come with nothing of our own, but we depend totally on you. And as we open your word and look once again at the story of the life of Job and his interaction with you and other people, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us. And may we see your loveliness, your grace. As we study this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Job chapter 11 and And verse 7, can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? Let's read that again, Job 11, verse 7. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? The problem of human suffering surely continues to daunt humanity. We see good people suffer immense tragedy while evil ones go unpunished in this life. A few years ago, a book came out called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It was one of the numerous attempts over the millennia to come to a satisfactory answer to that problem. It didn't. Many other writers and thinkers have written of their struggle to come to terms with human suffering. But they don't seem to have found the right answers. This theme, of course, is the theme of the book of Job, and in it we continue to explore why even good people, such as Job, suffer in this world. The crucial difference between the book of Job and the others, though, is that Job is not based on human perspectives of suffering, though we get plenty of that in the book. Rather, because it's the Bible, we get a look at God's perspective on the problem. This week we read more speeches from the men who came to Job in his misery. What can we learn from them, especially from their mistakes, as they try, as others have done, to come to grips with the problem of pain? Sunday, November 6, More Accusations As if getting a lecture from Eliphaz wasn't bad enough, Job then faced one from Bildad, who said something similar to what Eliphaz had said. Unfortunately, Bildad was cruder and harsher toward Job than even Eliphaz was. Imagine going up to someone whose children had died and saying to the person, If your sons have sinned against him... He has cast them away for their transgression. That's Job 8 and verse 4. This is ironic because the first chapter of Job in verse 5 makes it clear that Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his children for that very reason, in case they had sinned. If we see a contrast here between an understanding of grace as seen in Job's actions and Bildad's opening words which reveal a harsh, retributive legalism. Even worse, though, is that Bildad speaks his way in his attempt to defend the character of God. Question. Read Job chapter 8 verses 1 through to 22. What is Bildad's argument and how much truth is he speaking? That is, if you were to forget the immediate context and just look at the sentiments expressed, what fault, if any, would you find with his words? Well, let's begin with verse 1 of Job chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuanite answered and said, How long will you speak these things, and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God subvert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your sons have sinned against Him, He will cast them away for their transgression. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty... If you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you, and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Though your beginning was small, yet your latter end would increase abundantly. For inquire, please, of the former age, and consider the things discovered by their fathers. For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days are on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words from their heart? Can the papyrus grow up within a marsh? Can the reeds flourish without water? While it is yet green and no not cut down, it withers before any other plant. So are the paths of all who forget God, and the hope of the hypocrite shall perish, whose confidence shall be cut off, and whose trust is a spider's web. He leans on his house, but it does not stand. He holds it fast, but it does not endure. He grows green in the sun, and his branches spread out in his garden. His roots wrap around the rock heap, and look for a place in the stones, and he is destroyed from his place. Then it will deny him, saying, I have not seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth others will grow. Behold, God will not cast away the blameless, nor will he uphold the evil doers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughing and your lips with rejoicing. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the dwelling place of the wicked will come to nothing. Who can find fault with so much of what he is saying here? For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on earth are a shadow, verse 8. That's powerful, true, and very biblical, as we read in James 4, verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Or, what's wrong with his warning that the godless man who puts his hope in the earthly, worldly things is really trusting in something no firmer than, as it said in verse 14, a spider's web. That's about as biblical a thought as one could get. Perhaps the biggest problem is that Bildad is presenting just one aspect of God's character. It's an example of being in a ditch on one side of the road or the other neither place is where you really should be. Someone can, for instance, focus only on law and justice and obedience, while someone else can focus on grace and forgiveness and substitution. Either overemphasis usually leads to a distorted picture of God and of truth. We see a similar problem here. So to finish today, As humans, we should always strive for the right balance between law and grace in our theology and in our dealing with others. If, however, you were to err on one side or the other, and as humans we eventually do, which side would it be better to err on when dealing with the faults of others, and why? Monday, November 7. Less than your iniquity deserves. From Job chapter 11, verses 7 to 9, we read, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth, and broader than the sea. Let's also look at isaiah chapter forty verses twelve to fourteen who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance who has directed the spirit of the lord or as his counsellor has taught him with whom did you, he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Question. What truth is being expressed, and why is it important for us always to remember it? The words here are beautiful expressions of the fact that there is so much about God we don't know and that all of our efforts to search him out by ourselves will still leave us knowing so little. It's interesting that one of the 20th century's most famous philosophers, the late Richard Rorty, basically argued that we are never going to understand reality and truth, and so we ought to give up the attempt. Instead of trying to understand reality, Rorty argued, all we can do is try to cope with it. How fascinating! 2,600 years of the Western philosophical tradition culminates in this expression of defeat. If all our searching leaves us in the dark about the nature of the reality that we live in, then who, as it says in Scripture, by searching, is going to understand the Creator? The one who made that reality to begin with, and so is even greater than it. Rorty essentially affirmed what we just read from the Bible. Yet these texts, profound as they are, were from a speech from Zophar, the third of Job's acquaintances, and he used those words as part of a faulty argument against Job. Question. Read Job, chapter 11, verses 1 through to 20. What is right with what Zophar is saying, but what is wrong with his overall argument? Job, chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Then Zophar the Naamathite answered and said, Should not the multitude of words be answered, and should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock should no one rebuke you. For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But, oh, that God would speak and open His lips against you, that He would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by, imprisons and gathers to judgment, then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if a were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let the wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery. And remember it as waters that have passed away, and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning, and you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail, and they shall not escape. And their hope, loss of life. It's so hard to understand how someone could come up to a man suffering as Job is and say to him basically, You are getting what you deserve. No, in fact, you are getting less than you deserve. What's even worse is that he is doing it, as were the two others, all in an attempt to vindicate the goodness and character of God. So to finish today... Sometimes merely knowing truths about the character of God does not automatically make us reflect it. What more do we need in order to reflect God's character? Tuesday, November eighth, Divine Retribution Job's three friends undoubtedly had some knowledge about God, and they were earnest in their efforts to defend him too. And, as we saw, as misguided as their words to Job were, especially given the context, these men were expressing some crucial truths. Central to their arguments was the idea that God is a God of justice— and that sin brings divine retributive punishment upon evil and special blessings upon goodness. Though we don't know the exact time that the men lived, we accept that Moses wrote the book of Job while he was in Midian, so they lived some time before the Exodus. Most likely, too, they lived after the flood. Question. Read Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through to 8 though we don't know how much these men Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar knew about the flood, how might its story have influenced their theology? Well, Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and was grieved in his heart. So, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Clearly, the story of the flood is an example of divine retribution for sin. In it, God brings punishment directly upon those who specifically deserved it. Yet, even here, the concept of grace is revealed as seen in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Ellen White wrote, too, of the fact that Every hammer blow struck upon the ark was preaching to the people. That's from the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 1, page 70. Nevertheless, to some degree, we can see in this story an example of what these men were preaching to Job. Question? Is this same idea of retributive judgment seen in other verses, such as Genesis chapter 13, verse 13? But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord, and Genesis chapter 18, verses 20 to 32: And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord, and Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes.' Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, If I find there were forty-five, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. And also in Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 to 25. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Whether or not Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar knew much about these incidents, they reveal the reality of God's direct judgment upon evil. God wasn't simply abandoning sinners to their sin and letting that sin itself destroy them. As with the flood, God was the direct agent of their punishment. He functioned here as the judge and destroyer of wickedness and evil. And so to finish the day, However much we want to and should focus on God's character of love, grace and forgiveness, why must we not forget the reality of His justice as well? Think about all the evil that has yet gone unpunished. What should this tell us about the necessity of divine retribution, whenever and however it comes? Wednesday, November 9, if the Lord creates a new thing. Many instances of divine, direct divine punishment upon evil, as well as blessing for faithfulness, are recorded in Scripture long after all the characters in the book of Job were dead. Question. What great promise is given here for obedience in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 and 25? And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The Old Testament is filled with the promise after promise of the blessings and prosperity that God would directly bring to His people were they to obey Him. So, we can see here examples of what these men had said to Job regarding God's blessing, the faithfulness of those who seek to obey Him and His commandments, and to live a godly and upright life. Of course, The Old Testament also is filled with warning after warning about direct divine punishment that would come for disobedience. In much of the Old Testament, especially after the covenant with Israel at Sinai, God is warning the Israelites about what their disobedience would bring upon them, as it says in 1 Samuel 12.15, But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. Question. Read Numbers chapter 16 verses 1 to 33. What does this incident teach about the reality of divine retributive punishment? Numbers chapter 16 beginning at verse 1. Now Korah the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and... On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, two hundred and fifty leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves. For all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them.' Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korah and all his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him. That one whom he chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all your company, "'Put fire in them, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow, "'and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. "'You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi.' "'Then Moses said to Korah, "'Hear now, you sons of Levi, "'it is a small thing to you that the God of Israel "'has separated you from the congregation of Israel "'to bring you near to himself, "'to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord,' and to stand before the congregation to serve them, and that he has brought you near to the priesthood also. Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? And Moses went to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land of "'flowing with milk and honey, to kill us in the wilderness, "'that she should keep acting like a prince over us? "'Moreover, you have not brought us into a land "'flowing with milk and honey, "'nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. "'Will you put out the eyes of these men? "'We will not come up.' "'Then Moses was very angry, and said to the Lord, "'Do not respect their offering. "'I have not taken one donkey from them.' nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with All the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins." So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and Dathan and Abiram went out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But? If the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the men with Korah, and all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them and they perished from among the assembly. Given the nature of how the rebels were destroyed, this incident cannot be chalked up to the idea of sin bringing its own punishment. These people faced divine and direct retribution from God for their sin and rebellion. In this case, we see supernatural manifestations of God's power. It seemed that the very laws of nature themselves were changed. As it says in Numbers 16 verse 30, But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. The verb creates here is from the same root used for created in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. The Lord wanted everyone to know that it was He Himself who immediately and directly brought this punishment upon the rebels. THURSDAY, NOVEMBER 10, THE SECOND DEATH Certainly the greatest and most powerful manifestation of retributive judgment will be at the end of time with the destruction of the wicked, called in the Bible, in Revelation 20 verse 14, the SECOND DEATH. This death, of course, must not be confused with the death common to all the descendants of Adam— this is the death from which the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will spare the righteous at the end of time. As we read in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-six. the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. In contrast, the second death, like some of the other punishments seen in the Old Testament times, is God's direct punishment upon sinners who have not repented and received salvation in Jesus question read second peter chapter 3 verses 5 to 7 what is the word of god telling us about the fate of the lost second peter 3 beginning at verse 5 for this they willfully forget that by the word of god the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. A quote from Great Controversy, page 672 and 673 fire comes down from god out of heaven the earth is broken up the weapons concealed in its depths are drawn forth devouring flames burst from every yawning chasm the very rocks are on fire the day has come that shall burn as an oven the elements melt with fervent heat the earth also and the works that are therein are burned up as it says in malachi and in second peter The earth's surface seems one molten mass, a vast seething lake of fire. It is the time of the judgment and perdition of ungodly men, the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion, as it says in Isaiah 34, verse 8, end of quote. Though sin can bring its own punishment, there surely are times that God himself does directly punish sin and sinners. As Job's protagonist argued, it's true that all suffering in this world has arisen from sin, but it's not true that all suffering is God's punishment of sin. That was certainly not the case with Job, nor in most other cases as well. The fact is that we are involved in the great controversy and we have an enemy who is out to do us harm. The good news is that, amid it all, we can know that God is there for us. Whatever the reasons for the trials we face, whatever the present outcomes of those trials, we have the assurance of God's love, a love revealed as so great that Jesus went to the cross for us, an act that alone promises to end all suffering. And so to finish today, how can we be sure that someone's suffering is direct punishment from God? If we can't be sure, then what's the best approach for us to take with that suffering person, or even with our own suffering? Friday, November eleven. As said earlier in this quarter, it's important to try to put ourselves in the place of the characters in the story, because doing so can help us to understand their motives and actions. They didn't see the battle going on behind the scenes as we do. If we put ourselves in their shoes, it shouldn't be that hard for us to see the mistake that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar made in regard to Job's suffering. They were making a judgment that they were really not qualified to make. As Ellen White writes in the 7th Avenue Bible Commentary, Volume 3, page 1140, It is very natural for human beings to think that great calamities are a sure index of great crimes and enormous sins, but men often make a mistake in thus measuring character. We are not living in the time of retributive judgment. Good and evil are mingled and calamities come upon all. Sometimes men do pass the boundary line between God's protecting care and then Satan exercises his power over them or upon them and God does not interpose. Job was sorely afflicted and his friends sought to make him acknowledge that his suffering was the result of sin and cause him to feel under condemnation. They represented his case as that of a great sinner, but the Lord rebuked them for their judgment of his faithful servant. End of quote. We need to be careful how we deal with the whole question of suffering. Sure, in some cases it seems easy to understand. Someone smokes cigarettes and gets lung cancer. How much simpler could it be? That's fine, but what about those who smoke all their lives and never get it? Is God punishing the one but not the other? In the end, like Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, we don't always know why suffering comes as it does. In one sense, it almost doesn't matter if we know or not. What matters is what we do in response to the suffering that we see— Here's where these three men were totally wrong. And that brings us to our discussion questions for this week. There are two. One, what does the reality of retributive punishment teach us about how we can trust in the ultimate justice of God, even despite how things seem now? Two, these three men really didn't understand all that was happening to Job in his suffering. In a sense, Isn't that the case with us all? We don't fully understand the reasons for human suffering. How then should this realisation help us to be more compassionate with those who are suffering? As stated above, how important is it that we even know the immediate causes? side story our mission story this week is titled beautiful in god's time part 2 while mahela worked and kept house her husband neither worked nor studied one day he told her that he had received a visa to go to spain but hers hadn't yet come so he went to spain without her Mahela lived with her in-laws after her husband left. She had plenty of time on her hands, so she began reading Adventist literature that her mother had given her. Finally, her visa came and she planned to join her husband. She promised God that if they could be reunited, she would be baptised at the first opportunity. When Mahela arrived in Spain, she moved into the apartment she and her husband would share with two other families and a single woman. She was delighted to find that one of the families was Adventist, and they had been taking her husband to church. Joyfully, the couple began attending church together. Mahala found work as a nanny, which required that she be away from home from Monday morning until Friday evening. She lived for the weekends when she could be with her husband. This seemed to be going well for the couple. Her husband had found work and she looked forward to being able to afford their own apartment soon. Then, one by one, people began telling Mahala that her husband was spending too much time with the single woman who lived in the same apartment. Mahela noticed that the two seemed quite friendly, but they denied any secret relationship. Then her husband's interest in attending church waned. He began asking Mahela to cook or go shopping with him on Sabbath. When she refused, he threatened to take the other woman instead. Finally, she gave in and went shopping with her husband and the other woman. She was miserable and decided she wouldn't give in to his threats again. The following week, the Adventist pastor visited and Mahala told him she wanted to be baptised. Later that week, her husband's boss confirmed that her husband and the other woman were more than just friends. Mahala confronted the woman who admitted it was true. Mahala couldn't return to the apartment, so she asked her employers if she could stay in their home on the weekends as well. In spite of losing her husband to another woman, Mahala has found joy in her constant friend Jesus, who has given her faith and the strength to deal with her broken marriage. She rejoices to see how God is working in her life, and her parents are happy that she has committed her life to Christ in baptism. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.